Well, an exasperated husband once said to his wife, why do you worry about everything? You know it doesn't do any good anyway. She goes, oh, no, no. Yes, it does. She said, 90% of the things I worry about never happen. <laughs> right? Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you see the word counterattack. For me, what comes to my mind is uh, Hollywood movies. It's the fighter pilots zooming and screaming across the sky and chasing the bad guys, chasing the good guys. In my generation, it was things like Top Gun and Air Force One and Independence Day, Star Wars. Maybe in your generation, it's the Avengers or, you know, Iron Man, who has his own plane somehow, all by himself. But we see these these fighter planes zooming and diving and weaving through skyscrapers, through canyons. They're outgunning, outmaneuvering, outflying one another, the bad guys. And especially when they bring the countermeasures out, things like chaff, missiles, machine guns, flares, right? Well, that's when we get our heroes trying to escape. And they're throwing out everything, try to get away from the bad guy. But there's always a point in the movie where the table turns and the hero starts to get the upper hand. When he goes on the offensive and he pushes the bad guy back. Like when Luke goes down into, I don't know, it's some kind of a metal canyon, right? And he's down in there and the bad guy's coming back and he's shooting at him. But then at that key moment, he takes that missile or bomb or whatever they call it and he drops it into the Death Star, right? And we cheer and all is right with the world. Now, a counterattack is defined as an attack to offset or reply to another attack. But in its simplest form, it just means to fight back. It's time to fight back. And at some point, the good guys fight back. I want you to imagine yourself today in the cockpit. Your hands are sweating. Your heart is racing. And you are the one who's having to make the life and death decisions. Because let me be clear, you are in a battle. You are waging war. You have an enemy, an enemy named anxiety. And he's there to try to take over your heart. And you have to pull out all the countermeasures. You have to fight. This is the time. Um, my hope is that even though that enemy is just as real as the bogeys on the screen, that you'll realize with the right skills and the right motivation that you can fight back and you can actually win the battle that rages around us with our nemesis of worry. And I don't want you to downplay this. Because you actually, whether you're in a big skirmish or you are in a full-blown war, we all fight worry of some kind. We all fight it. I hope that you've seen anxiety for what it is this weekend, not something that just women just do. Some people, even in our Christian world, see it as an acceptable sin. It is not acceptable. It is just as offensive to our God as greed, as lust, as nagging, as lying, as idolatry, as divisiveness between the sisters. This is sin that displeases the Lord. It's not only wrong, though, it's frankly very unbecoming of a woman who's saying, I'm a child of the king. 
Think of it. It doesn't even make sense. What a bad witness we are if we're saying we're worried when our Father is the King of the universe. Doesn't even make sense. But God's got a fighter plane full of gears and levers for you today. And he's going to teach you some fancy flying techniques. And he even has countermeasures for you. There's going to be three specific ones from this passage to help you get the victory. But just like a military pilot isn't just measured for a suit and handed an $80 million plane. No, he has to go through all kinds, or she, has to go through all kinds of work to get there. You've got to run, run up and down hills with heavy packs on their back. Sit in simulators for hour upon hour going through scenarios so that when the moment comes, muscle memory will kick in and they'll be ready to do the right thing when the battle is raging. It means we too are going to make the same kind of commitment to hard work ahead of time, to getting the things in your life, in your mind, in your patterns so that you are ready to fight when anxiety comes. Paul's got everything we need right here in Philippians 4. I want you to open your Bible, Philippians 4. I'm one of those girls. I want it in your text right in front of you, Philippians 4. And we're not starting at the standard verse 4. We're starting at verse 3. And there's a reason for that. Philippians 4, 3 starts this way. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you've been in church a while, you know this is the passage, the passage that we go to when we're studying anxiety. And you know it all boils down to don't be anxious, pray. And there are a lot of you here that are frankly saying, been there, done that. It doesn't work. At least not for me. Okay, well, first of all, there's a lot more than crying out to God in this passage, number one. And number two, I would never dare to knock going to the God of the universe with your needs and saying it doesn't work. But there is much more to apply and glean from this passage than just that. There's a whole package here, and I promise you with steady and consistent application, you will win the victory. You will, with God's help, over this enemy you have. And while we think of it as the classic passage on worry, as I studied it this time, I actually came to think of it as the quintessential passage on peace, the exact opposite of our enemy, worry. Because in this passage, 
we are guaranteed an overwhelming sense of calm. All throughout this passage, over and over and over, God promises us peace here. In verse 5, he says it's a reasonableness that everyone can see. In verse 7, he says it's going to envelop you when you pray. And in verse 8 and 9, it says if you think right and you live right, the God of peace comes to live beside you. It's the perfect place for us to end our weekend because the promise of peace is right here. He's holding out to you the most precious gift that he can in your scariest and most uncertain days. Peace. That's what he promises right here. As a follower of Christ, you can, many have defined peace as, sit down in your heart. As a follower of Christ, you can have that. You can have peace. You can sit down in your heart. You're the only ones it's promised to. But if you're a real follower of Christ, he promises it. We know that um, anxiety is natural. I said it yesterday. Peace is supernatural. It is a gift of God. So you're tired. You're tired of sinning. You're tired of worrying. Today, God's going to give you what your heart longs for more than anything else, that you could sit down with him. So we got to join his counteroffensive today. We've got to be ready to fight. We've got to be ready to give up this acceptable sin by faithfully doing what's right. Now, I know it's true from this passage. I know it's true. But I also know it's true because God's done it for me. Um, you don't know this about me. In fact, I don't think anybody knows this about me. But my nickname as a kid was Worry Wart. And you know what? It wasn't funny or cute. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. It was demeaning. It made me feel very small and helpless. But it was true. It was very true. And I know that many of you struggle with anxiety. And I want to assure you that no matter what you bring to the table, that God's going to take the five small loaves and the two scrawny fish that you have to give him. And he's going to make something amazing out of it. I know it. I know it here. Now, in our movies, in our Hollywood movies, there always comes a point, a turning point in the movie, where the enemy, or excuse me, where the hero, not the enemy, where the hero says, I've had enough. This ends now, right? My hope is that this message for you is the moment in your life when you look back on it and you say, I've had enough. This pattern of anxiety in my life, it ends today. I'm going to do these simple things, and I'm never going to be the same again. The first countermeasure that God gives us is in verse 3 and 4. It says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, there's lots of things to be anxious about, but maybe one of the worst are people problems. People problems. Tough things relationally among people. That's what's happening right here in Philippians. Um, a couple of gals aren't getting along. 
Fancy that. We have no idea what that's like. <laughs> I don't know what Paul's talking about. But even in the midst of that, when there's problems between people, relational issues, he says, rejoice always. And again, I will say rejoice. People are fighting. What? Rejoice? How can we do that? There's trouble. There's drama. There's people stuff. And he says, rejoice. We don't think there's anything to rejoice about in those moments. But he says, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Um, no matter what our problem, no matter what our challenge, no matter who's ha- what's happening in our lives, he's going to tell us right here that our biggest and most important problem has been taken care of, ladies. You know how I know that? Because the phrase at the end of verse 3. The phrase at the end of verse 3 says that the Philippians have had their names written in the book of life. The most important problem they have ever had in their life is already, it's already taken care of. It's already been solved. With that one phrase, he reminds us that we can rejoice, we can get happy, and we can stay happy no matter what you're driving home to, no matter what's coming next week. You can get happy and stay happy if you're a follower of Christ because your problems are taken care of. You're on your way to heaven. Your name is written in the book of life. You're saved. So if that most important issue is solved, no matter what our challenge is, we need to, point number one, get happy about what matters most. We need to get happy about what matters most. Paul is reminding us here that we are his, we're God's kids. We're God's kids and we're on our way to heaven. Our sin has been forgiven. That means everything's okay. That's why verse four says rejoice in the Lord always. Because again, no matter what problem you have, no matter how your feelings have been hurt, how you might have been wronged, you've escaped the flames of hell. How does anything you're dealing with stack up against that? Anything that could cause you anxiety, you're on your way to heaven and you'll never pay for your sin. God chose you before the foundation of the world to save you, to forgive you for every sin you'll ever commit, not just the stuff that's past, but the stuff you'll do tomorrow and next week and next year and 10 years from now. If all that is forgiven, you can get happy right now, no matter what fears you have. So that's the first flare that Paul's going to shoot out into our battle. Be happy in the Lord. Be happy because of what God has done for you. And he says here that that should make you feel good. That's what be happy or rejoice it means. Feel good about it. It means happiness. You're like, wait a minute. Okay, feel good, happiness. I mean, isn't that something we reserve for heaven? Now, most of us want to do that. We want to push off this good feeling for some other day when we're actually there. The problem is, um, that's not what this says. This is a command to do this now. To rejoice and be glad and be happy. Be happy today because your name's written in the book of life. And just, I think, to cut off our excuses that immediately come to our mind of why we can't do that, he says, wait, no, let me repeat myself, right? I, I mean this. I'm not stuttering. Let me say it to you again. Um, I want you to be happy today, now. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
We need to remember to be happy. And we need to remember it's a command and that Christians, frankly, cannot be Eeyore. I know we like him. We think he's, well, actually, some of us identify him with him more than others. But um, rejoice in the Lord always means that no Christian can be an Eeyore. If that's your tendency, you need to fight even that. Um, enough said. Okay. But frankly, we just can't imagine being happy right now. I mean, the government's taking our freedoms left and right. We've got war, obviously, on the horizon. Um, people are just blowing God off about sanctity of life, about gender. I, the economy's tanking. The state of education is a mess. Families are disintegrating. I get it. But he says, rejoice always, and again, I will say rejoice. It's because we're rejoicing in the Lord. See that little tiny phrase? We're rejoicing in the Lord, not in the earth or in the family or in my life. It's rejoice in the Lord because we're part of God's family and no one's ever going to take that away from us. We're happy about all that God's given us, his forgiveness, his salvation, his word, his spirit, a secure future in heaven. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, the purpose we have as Christians, the hope we have as Christians, the love we experience because we're Christians. Could we be happy about that? Absolutely, regardless of what's happening out there. These important realities about being a real Christian can make even our house in foreclosure a positive pet scan, and an unfaithful husband, okay. It can make him okay. If you've surrendered your life to follow Christ and you're a real Christian, that little phrase, your name is written in the book of life, means that your name has been written in Sharpie in the official registry of heaven. In Revelation 3.5, it says, that your name will never be blotted out. Not ever. That means that no matter what law gets passed, what disease you contract, or who gets elected, you can be happy in the Lord. Now, like I said, peace is all throughout this, and peace is the opposite of worry, and it's guaranteed to every Christian. In Philippians 4, 5, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, reasonableness doesn't roll off the tongue. Reasonableness doesn't roll off the tongue very well, and you probably didn't say that word anytime recently. But you do use the word reasonable, right? Reasonable. It means steady, calm unemotional, and where you're anxious and stressed, you are anything but that, right? It is not your default mode um, to be reasonable when you're worried. When you're worried, you're impatient, you're prone to outbursts, and you're irrational, right? But he promises you here that you can be calm because the Lord is at hand, the Lord is at hand. Now, different people have different views on this. Some people say this is a reminder that God's coming back soon. Great. 
I love it. Let's do it. Today, awesome. <laughs> Some people say it means that he's beside us. Like uh, Psalm 145, 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Either way, either he's coming back or he's with me today, because he's at hand, I can be reasonable. I can be calm. I can be at peace. I can rest. It reminds me of an incredibly kind policeman I heard of. Um, little girl's name is Sydney. She was four years old and she moved to a new town. And, you know, when you move to a new place, your house goes through a million inspections. This, that, the other thing, right? Well, she decided they needed one more. They needed an inspection for monsters. So when she was in town and she saw the policeman, she asked this random policeman, could you come to my house? We need a monster inspection. <laughs> and this super kind guy said, okay. And came to their house and, you know, Sydney had already looked under the sofa, you know, for monsters and didn't find any. But, you know, the police officer, he picked up every cushion just to make sure there was no monsters there. They checked inside the house, they checked outside the house, no evidence of monsters anywhere. And you know what that policeman gave to that little girl? He gave her confidence and peace as she moved into her new home. You know, that's what, that's what God does for us because he is at hand. He gives us a confidence and a peace no matter what rages around us. And we can be happy because God has already given us the most important things that we need. So how do they get the worry wart nickname? Well, by both, sadly, in my case, nature and nurture, I was frankly just scared of everything. I mean, you name it, I was scared of it. Boogeyman, all kinds of stuff. But the worst one for me um, is insomnia. I spent um, every day of my childhood um, having to go to bed, having to go to sleep before everybody else because I could not sleep if I was the only one awake. I had to go to bed earlier all the way through my childhood and teen years. I had to beat everybody to bed because if I didn't, I couldn't sleep. And then, sadly, I also had insomnia in the middle of the night and I would wake up repeatedly with nightmares and all kinds of things. And every time I woke up, I couldn't go back to sleep because everybody was asleep. And so I would have to wake my sister up, poor thing, in the middle of the night just so I had somebody to be awake with. And that happened all the time. She was not very happy with me. Now, I am sure that my parents divorced when I was five and the very traumatic custody case that happened right after it when I was forced to sit in a courtroom and um, testify against my own mother probably didn't help me, let alone being raised by a single mom who does not trust Christ and did not help me trust in Christ. Um, I'm sure none of that helped me. But I can tell you what did. The day as a 16-year-old that I surrendered my life to follow Christ. Because on that day, even though my problems didn't change and I have been opposed um, on my Christianity since day one and still to this day, uh, that pivotal day, I realized I had a father who was never leaving. I realized that 
There was never going to be a time when he didn't love me. And I realized that no matter what happened, that I was going to be okay. And it brought a security and assurance to my life that I had never known before that pivotal day. Now, to fight our battle with worry, we have to think about things like that. The moment when Christ gave us that kind of peace with him that we have that relationship with him and what he's done for us eternally and will never be taken away no matter what happens in our lives. And if that's you and you've done that in this room, I am so thankful that he's opened your eyes and you need to draw on that decision. That day is the first thing you need to draw on when it comes to you overcoming your anxiety. But I am absolutely positive in a room like this that there are people that do not have that assurance, that don't know that even if the world collapses tomorrow, that they're going to be okay because they're safe in the arms of Christ, because they have turned from their sin and they have trusted in him. I know that there's people in here that haven't done that. And I know Stephanie talked about this last night. If your heart was beating last night and you did not do business with God and now it's like on overdrive, don't, don't leave today without talking to someone here that you know loves God, you know follows him. Have them talk to you. You need the most important assurance of all. You will never overcome your anxiety without him. Never. Because you have no assurance of what's going to happen the minute after you die without him. So you got to do that first. But for all y'all who are Christians, you got to remember that day. I know there's lots of scary stuff, but he's got you. And one of the practical things I do regularly is start every prayer time, um, in my quiet time, start every prayer time by remembering what God did for me. It sounds so simple, but sit there and thank him for where you were and where you are. Thank him for adopting you. Remember you not going to hell. (laughs) Um, Remember that heaven's in your future. Take some time. I promise you, it will make you more spiritually optimistic. No matter what your day holds, if you can remember what he's already done for you and how he's already done the most important thing in your life. Um, Another great way to get this in your mind is to think through the attributes of God. Maybe even do this on a walk. You know, we we talked about the lilies and we talked about the grass of the field. You know, when you're on a walk and you're actually sitting there and looking at the creation of God, listening to the birds, stopping to smell a flower, looking at the sunrise and the great purple and orange paintbrush that God puts across the sky every morning, feeling the ocean waves spraying on you as you're walking the beach trail, and you remember the bigness of God, that's the guy who loves you. That's the guy who saved you. That's the one who keeps you safe. It's going to change the way you look at your life. If you can't get out, there's lots of YouTube videos with nature scenes and hymns. It's awesome. I looked them all up. But I do remember one time as a college student being 2,000 miles away from home, and my grandmother was dying. And um, I remember my RA bringing me into her dorm room and saying, lay down on the floor right there. 
like, okay. Um, and on her ceiling, she had all these pictures of nature, all these posters of the amazing, wonderful creations of God. And she put on, great is thy faithfulness. She said, I want you to lay down right there. And she left the room. And I just remember looking at the ceiling and being reminded of the amazing, wonderful, great God we have, of his amazing attributes and what he had already done for me on a moment that I was very anxious and how God is so faithful. That is your God. No matter what you go through, that is your God. And you can be happy today because he's got you in a safe place. Well, now we've come to the most familiar place in Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. Um, it's the one your dad drilled into you as you tried to deal with anxiety in your life. Um, Kindle says, frankly, this is the most highlighted verse in your Bible. <laughs> it even tops John 3.16 and Psalm 23, if you can believe it or not, which is actually a sad commentary on where our world is, if this is the most highlighted verse in our Bibles. But it's an oldie and a goodie, so um, I know you're familiar with it, but you've got to read it and you've got to do it, okay? Um, if you do this, this can kickstart you getting rid of anxiety, okay? It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Everyone longs for peace, but God promises it to his kids right here. Right here, it's a promise. If you take every concern to him, you can overcome your anxiety by point number two, pray more thankful prayers. You and I need to pray more thankful prayers. Every word there is intentional and in the passage. This is very simple. Verse six says, don't be anxious, pray about everything. And then he uses three words for prayer. He uses the word prayer, supplication, and requests. Three different words for praying and bringing things to God. The first word prayer is a general word for prayer. It includes the elements of prayer that you know, things like confession, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication, things we saw in the Lord's Prayer. And if you've studied that before, you, you know those things. That first word for prayer is all of that. And of course, you need to do all of that in your prayer time. That reminds me of what David does. You ever thought through the Psalms and how he starts and he's all, all balled up and then you know he sees God and he confesses his sin and he takes his needs and all of a sudden there's a resolution. By the end of the psalm, he's there. He's done these elements of prayer to get there, okay? And, and that's very important. Supplication has to do with making a plea to God, begging God. And requests are taking our specific needs to him. These are three different ways to talk about prayer. God is our dad and he's God at the same time which means there's nothing too big or too impossible for him. And at the same time, there's nothing too small or insignificant to take to him either because he's our dad and he's God at the same time. One commentator put it like this. He said, because we're his kids, we will always have his attention and we will always have his help, whether we come to him with cuts and bruises or with broken bones and heart attacks. 
You know, Paul piles on these words for prayer over and over and over again. And what he's trying to say is, pray with your whole heart. Get all into this. And it can't, I can't help but think of Epaphras, who is such a great prayer warrior in our Bibles. The Bible says this, he was always struggling in prayer for the Colossians. That's the kind of prayer Epaphras was. Or Anna, Anna who ends up getting to hold the baby Jesus in the temple because she is there day and night praying, the Bible says. Paul's trying to tell us, pray with all you've got. And in Matthew 7, 7 and 8, it's said like this. Ask, and by the way, it means and keep asking. That's the sense in what it says. Ask and keep asking, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep seeking, and you will find. Knock and keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it is opened. That was Matthew 7, 7 and 8. But don't misunderstand. Just because you ask, seek, and knock doesn't mean even in your worry and your anxiety, that you're going to get everything you ask for. Because God reserves the right to make the decision about what's best for you. And uh, I vividly remember not just days but months, months of begging God for something. Frankly, I begged God that he would allow us to stay at our old church. Over and over and over again, and he didn't. And at the time, I saw it as unanswered prayer, and it was painful. Um, But later, I came to see it as more than I could ever ask or imagine. Because you see, because God said no to my prayers and some of yours that you're still in here with us, Because God said no to our prayers, God created Compass AV and Compass HB and Compass Tustin and Compass Hill Country and Compass Treasure Valley and Compass North Texas. And there are people that I will never meet sitting in strong Bible teaching churches becoming real followers of Christ that I will meet in heaven because God said, no, I am not giving you what you want. We have to not look at God, as Stephanie said, as a vending machine that we put in the money, we plug in the numbers, and out comes nacho cheese Doritos. Because I wanted nacho cheese Doritos. But I got, I don't know, filet mignon, (laughs) strawberry cheesecake, I don't know. Um, No, what I got is pumpkin spice buntinis. That's what I got. (laughs) Only here two months out of the year, but that's my favorite. That's what I wanted, but I got something so much better. And the even biggest part of that prayer being not answered the way I wanted was the legacy of Compass Bible Institute, where hopefully, Lord willing, the decades that come, thousands, I hope, will be trained and sent out to plant, and more people will be in heaven because of it, all because God said no. Um, And he didn't keep us in a sleepy little town doing the ministry that we wanted to do at the time. Not anymore. Now we want to do this.
Now, some of you know the pain, though, of praying, and some of you, I'm looking in your faces, and I know exactly what you're praying for, and you know the pain of God saying no, and it sucks, and it hurts, and I'm sorry, and I've been there. I feel your pain, but so does Jesus, because he was distraught, and he didn't want the cross, and God gave it to him anyway, and aren't you thankful that he didn't get what he wanted? So did Paul. Paul didn't get what he wanted either. And so have many of us not gotten what we wanted. So don't despair if you ask, seek, and knock, and you don't get it. Um, I want you to listen to what Matthew 7 goes on to say after it tells us to ask, seek, and knock. In verse 9 of Matthew 7, it says, For which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a servant. Serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God gives us good stuff even if it's not what we anticipated. You might be wanting Reese's Pieces and he gives you vegetables. Well, then that's what's best for you. (laughs) And we have to learn to accept God's answers. We have to learn to accept even his no answers and move forward. And I'm looking at some of you, and I realize some of the no answers are much more painful than others. But we still have to move ahead in acceptance. Particularly if God is saying no, then that's obviously not his plan for you right now. You gotta embrace it, you gotta move forward. One of the ways that we get acceptance is found in Philippians 4, 6. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We ask and we pray for needs instead of worrying, but we also have to be thankful. Gratitude must be woven throughout all of our prayers to God. And the interesting thing about gratitude is that, um, and we're still back in point two, by the way. I hear the pages. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing about gratitude when it's woven throughout your prayers is that not only does it remind you what God has done for you in the past, but it makes you anticipate what he's going to do next. You start looking at, like, when is that going to happen? I'm asking for this. It changes the way you're looking ahead. It also changes, frankly, what you pray for. Because it's really tough when you're going, oh, thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, for saving me. Grr. You know, you're not like, um, you just don't have such a bad attitude. And you're also not praying, thank you, God, for my salvation. Thank you that you, you know, didn't allow me to be in hell. I really want those nacho cheese Doritos. You know, your, your prayers end up not being as selfish when you're praying with thanksgiving. Plus, you remember that when you're praying with thanksgiving, you remember he's real and he hears you. Because look what he already did for you. Thanksgiving peppered throughout your prayers really changes them and what you're looking for and what you're praying for and what you're anticipating from them. Um, Verse 7 says that when we pray thankful prayers that we will get peace. He says instead of pain and worry, we can have peace that surpasses understanding. This is an all-encompassing, mind-blowing, I can't even imagine 
um, what this is like, peace. It says that it comes and it stays with you. But it comes and it stays with you because you pray. That's why it comes and stays with you. That's when God is close by. That's when God cares for you. And it's a deep and abiding peace, no matter how daunting the situation. I saw this so clearly in action in the life of a sister just the other day. Out of the blue, she was, um, her husband was in the ICU, and she was facing, you know, a potentially really, really bad situation. And um, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I was anxious, and I prayed, and I asked people around me to pray because I knew I had to call this woman. And now I expected to be sitting there going, you know, cast your real cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. I, I expected to be that in her life. Um, but what I didn't expect is when I called her and talked to her, the amazing amount of peace. Um, I mean, literally my mind was blown I went thinking I was going to help her, and the very sentence, the first sentence out of her mouth, she lifted my head to heaven because she was so confident in the sovereignty of God. She was like, we're his. I'm his. He's his. Yeah. I mean, obviously, she wanted me to pray. Obviously, she wanted him to be okay. But she was so confident that whatever happened was God's plan. And I called with anxiety, and I hung up the phone without any. And the reason why was her. It was because she was trusting in the Lord. It's because she pointed my face to Christ. And she lived out Philippians 4, 6, and 7 right in front of me in the scariest hours of her life. And frankly, it was not because there was a newfangled uh, procedure that was going to be performed on her husband that day. It wasn't because we had the world-class specialists being brought in, flown in to deal with him. No, it was because God did it. She gave me peace. I hope I give you peace and that we continue on in peace because we can see that even in our scariest hours, God can give us peace. Verse 7 says that this peace um, is going to guard your heart and mind. We pray, and I mean really pray, continually pray, And the sovereign God says you will be calm and his peace will stand at attention next to you. Now, the Philippians understood this because they literally had soldiers at their gates trying to keep what was called the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. And I can tell you that God's peacekeeping force is better than anybody else's. And when he's camped out next to you because you've prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God, he will not fail and his peace will not fail. It will guard your heart and mind. But I'm anxious right now. What do I do today? I'm like paralyzed even as you're talking. I'm so scared. Uh, you need to, as, very, as soon as possible, you need to pray. And it cannot be a drive-through prayer. Maybe not even as you're driving home. Pull over, right? If you have to, pull over. If you've got to be home and you, you, you know, your husband's waiting, you can pull over for 15 minutes and pour your heart out to God. And when you're there, you need to remember passages like Colossians 4, 2 that says to continue steadfastly in prayer or keep praying. And 1 Peter 5, 7 that says to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That one's key. You throw them on him and then you leave them there. 
Part of our problem is we just grab it all back up. We're like, God do this. Nope, now I'm going to take it over, right? No, God do this. I trust you. However you do it, I'm your disciple. I follow you. And then you got to realize who you're talking to and the things he promises, things like this. Nothing you face is too much for him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. All the anxiety-producing stuff is going to work for good. Romans 8, 28. All the trials you face are going to grow you up in him. James 1, 2 to 4. No matter what you face, his grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And if you find that one, two, five, seven prayer sessions with God an hour or day or week isn't enough, then you call in reinforcements, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. You gather godly women around you to help you pray, to help you fight, and frankly, even to correct you when you're not doing the right stuff. Now, Praying to overcome your anxiety doesn't start the day the enemy is scaling the walls. And they're like, coming at you. They're right there. No, it happens long before that. You know, when you see people walking into, the, the soldiers walking into the recruiting office, your enemy soldiers, that's when you start praying. Long before you need it. A pattern of thankful praying needs to be in place so that you will not be paralyzed with fear. And you will remember that prayer your, God's peace and his help and his guarding of your life is only a prayer away. Now, as for my own journey to overcome anxiety, um, I told you insomnia was a real, a real deal for years and years and years. Um, if you know anything about my husband's schedule, you might see why that's a problem. <laughs> because he travels a lot. And I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that um, from the very first day, no problem, no problem. No, I was running around checking and double-checking every door, you know, making sure I knew where the weapon is, you know, um, <laughs> just making sure that everything's cool. Um, I did that for a while. And then I remember, you know, laying down in bed and being so afraid and feeling so alone. Um, I also remember three days specifically, three nights specifically, the days that each of my children received their driver's license <laughs> and were now free to roam the country. <laughs> and I remember being a total Orange County mom, you know, I'm like, okay, gonna pop the popcorn, gonna wait up, you know, that's what we do. He's your pastor, but he's my husband. And I remember clearly each time him reaching over me, turning out the light, and very gently and firmly and kindly saying to me, go to sleep now. <laughs> and don't worry, because you cannot even add a single hour to their lives. And all you're going to do if you worry is sin. And you know, at first, it's like, right, standing on the outside, sitting on the inside, that whole thing of like, okay. I remember rolling over and turning out the light and going, okay, okay, okay. Um, purely out of obedience to my husband and my God, 
um, I went to sleep. And of course, that first time look a, took a little longer. <laughs> um, but I can honestly say that now I don't even check the doors. I just, whatever, he's gone, she's gone, whatever. I just roll over. I roll over and go to sleep. But I had to do Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I had to choose. This is, be anxious for nothing is a choice. It's not just about praying. It's a decision. I had to make a decision to not be anxious and to roll over and go to sleep. There is an element to that here. And uh, now I sleep peacefully. I mean, hormones have messed the whole thing up, but it's not because of anxiety. <laughs> it's not because of anxiety anymore. It's I'm ready to pop up and mop the floor. It's not because I'm afraid. So um, you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but Psalm 4.8 has become a true reality in my life. Psalm 4.8 is so good. It says, I lay down and I sleep because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It reminds me of a funny story I heard about a lady and somebody was asking about her testimony and she said, oh, I know I'm a Christian now. And they were like, oh, how? She goes, well, before, you know, I used to toss and turn all night and my bed would take me forever to make in the morning. She goes, but now that I'm a Christian, my sheets are as smooth as silk when I get up <laughs> because I dwell in safety and I sleep. So we need to choose not to worry and we need to pray, right? We have to do both basically in this passage and we have to be thankful. There's a lot of elements. You would be thankful. My message actually originally had seven points. And then Mike helped me make it five and now three. But I had to get all the elements in, so they're in here. But if you can do all these things in this point, someday maybe your bed won't be so hard to make in the morning. Now we've come to what I think is actually the most important weapon in the battle with anxiety. And it is in uh, verse eight and nine. Verse eight and nine. It is the space between your ears. This is your most important weapon right here, if you can get control of this organ right here inside your skull, you can succeed um, from a human standpoint uh, with overcoming your anxiety. Verse eight and nine says this, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, ladies, our thoughts are key to us overcoming our anxiety. What we think about makes all the difference in the world and leads us to point number three, focus your mind on godly virtues. Focus your mind on godly virtues. Wow, the verses are all messed up. That's supposed to be verse eight and nine, by the way. But that's okay. Um, now, uh, worry, um, the actual word worry is the image of having your mind pulled in all different directions. And that's what it feels like, right? When you feel anxious, don't you feel like you're like scatterbrained? You're like everywhere? Um, Paul wants to untangle that for us. And thankfully, he doesn't just tell us what not to think about. Because that's not very helpful. Have you ever had somebody say, don't think about that? 
not helpful at all, right? No, um, he actually says this is what you should think of, which I think is incredibly helpful, okay? Besides being happy and praying, he's telling us to think about godly things, okay? The first on the list is what is true. Now, whether this is true, as in true with a capital T, truth, the Bible, okay, that's good. Of course we want to do that. Or it's true as in little t, real and actual. They're both very important. Your mind needs to be on the truth, and it needs to be on what is true and real. Okay? First of all, it needs to be on truth. Truth like no one can separate us from the love of God. And greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Those two right there will help with your, your struggle with worry, if those are true. Um, but that means we need to get some of that truth memorized so we can get it in here. You know, it doesn't help us to fill our, you know, guns with ammunition if it's not the right weapon for the job. You know, a pistol is not going to take out the aircraft carrier, right? A sledgehammer is a great weapon, but not against a missile. So let's get the right weapon for the right job, okay? Let's make them match. And here's a few, a few bullets that match. Um, what is it that you fear? If you're afraid about your bills and your everyday stuff, start with where we started Friday, Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Um, the next, if you feel powerless, hey, go back and memorize the storm on the Sea of Galilee, Galatians, excuse me, Matthew 8, 23 to 27. If you're worried over your past mistakes and your sins, do last night's Psalm 32, 1 to 5. Do you fear persecution? Psalm 27, 1 to 3, and 13 to 14 are good. Are you afraid of tomorrow? Memorize Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Are you scared of having poor health? 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Are you concerned that you cannot do the post that God has called you to? 2 Corinthians 9, 10. Are you afraid you won't be able to endure? Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. Are you fearful of being alone? Psalm 145, 18 will encourage you. And there's so many more. But you gotta memorize those. You gotta root them in here. For me, it's super simple right now. I can only handle one verse at a time. And I can only handle one verse a week. Which I know doesn't sound like a lot, but that's it. That's all I can do. So I write three post-it notes. In other words, I write each one of my one verse passages three times. Post-it note one is the same. Post-it note two, I write it again. Post-it note three, I write it a third time. My mirror, my desk, and my car. That's it. Writing it three times helps. Just writing it. Not printing it on the printer, actually making your hand write it helps. Then I just try to say those out loud all week long. And then the next week, I rip it off and I start another one. Talk to people that I know are trying to do it too. But we got to get it in here to have right thoughts so you can bring it back up in the moment that you need it and have it benefit you. We call that meditation. Meditation is bringing something up over and over again. It's like a cow chewing its cud. I Googled them this week. You know that a cow chews its cud initially just to wet it and swallow it. But then... It gets all the stomach acids and gets it really juicy, and then it brings it back up. 
And when it brings it back up, it chews it for a really long time. But every time it chews it, it makes that food more beneficial to the cow. So it can actually take it in and use it, and the nourishments actually help the cow the longer it's all chewed up, okay? We're not that different. We take in the Word of God. You're taking in the Word of God right now. But that's initially, that's great. Swallow it down. I know, sometimes it's harder than others. But then it's important to bring it back up and ponder it and think about it and meditate on it and chew on it in order for it to be the most useful for you. Google says that the healthiest cows chew their cud eight hours a day. (laughs) Eight hours a day? Well, that would be a good goal for us. If we meditated, (laughs) if we meditated on these passages about anxiety eight hours a day, do you think you'd have success? You betcha. Well, the scripture makes it even harder because it says we're supposed to meditate day and night. That's a lot more than eight hours. Okay, maybe we should shoot for the cow and... (laughs) You know, you will win your battle with anxiety if you start chewing the cud of these verses on anxiety. Now, focusing on one as true is the other part of this, and what I mean by that is actual, (laughs) true, real, actual. Um, We had the truth, the Bible, now we're going to talk about thinking about what actually is happening as opposed to what might happen, could happen, may happen, probably will never happen, right? But we go there, the what ifs. Multiple studies have said that between 92 and 95 percent, between 92 and 95 percent of what you worry about either never happens or is something you have no control over. 92 to 95 percent of the stuff that's filling your mind and making your brain go, you know, you can't do anything about. What a total waste the grief that you're experiencing is for something you cannot do anything about. And I've read multiple studies that said the same thing. Talk about borrowing trouble, as Matthew 6, 34 says, which flipped around means at the very best, 8% of what you worry about is something that's either actually happening to you or you have some control over. 8%. I mean, I know this sounds funny, but I'm going to ask you to shoot for the 8%. Right? If we could all just strip away the 92%, do you know how much more at peace we would be? How much more productive we would be for Jesus Christ? How much more we'd be able to do for his kingdom? Even what better moms and wives and everything we would be if we could strip away the 92 to 95%. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's unbelievable. He goes on to say that we should think of what's honorable, respectful, just right, pure, admirable, of course. We need to think about these good and lovely things in order to have peace and sit down in our hearts. Because all the Googling does every possible diagnosis because of the stomachache we have, you know, all that it does for us is give us, you know, worst case scenarios and more sleepless nights. So whatever's causing you to have more anxiety, you need to cut it out of your life. I don't know, person, a program, a blog, Whatever it is, get rid of that and start spending more time on what is good and honorable and filling your mind with that kind of stuff. We need to be living out Isaiah 26, 3. Oh, so good. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I cannot oversell how important it is to think right. It was only 
just brought back and confirmed to me when I read about the Presidential Personnel Office. They're talking about how they hire people and the best people to hire for crisis. And they said it is not the yes man or woman that's the best person to hire in crisis. They said um, this, this astronaut asked the right question. The astronaut said um, that they were interviewing, he said, okay, so what, um, let's just imagine that you're living on the International Space Station and all of a sudden your oxygen turns off and you know you have 10 seconds before you go unconscious. What do you do? Okay, that's a quite a crisis, harder than anything we're experiencing. Um, but this is what the guy said. He said all of a sudden people started blurting out solutions. I'd do this, I'd do that. And the astronaut stopped them and he said this. He said no, he said you think for eight seconds and then you make one move. You see, it's important for us to think right, to think well, and not just run around with chickens with our heads cut off when crisis comes. Think well. Think for eight seconds and then make just one move. Discipline your organ right here for good and sound thinking. There's one more element here. It says in verse 9, you have what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And the third chunk we see is that peace comes. Peace comes to someone who thinks right and who does right because the God of peace comes to live beside you. The God of peace is the one who is with someone who thinks right and does right. It's amazing when you think about that. If you think right and you do right, God lives with you. He is the essence of peace, and he gives peace to people who do that. We have to focus on right thinking and right doing. Um, now, that means we need to gather people around us who can be good examples for us. As this passage says, in the first century, um, the people would look to the apostles, right? Those were the examples that they should be looking to. And um, Paul had no problem in 1 Corinthians 11:1 1, saying, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And to the extent that your spiritual heroes, living and dead, and you should have some living ones, not just dead ones, um, to the extent that your spiritual heroes um, think and live and do and say and care about the right things, you should think and live and do and care about the right things. To the extent that they um, follow Christ, you should follow them. When you see them doing the right thing, you should do the right thing as you follow them. You need to find people that you can watch and follow after that, for one thing, have this under control and fight for it, but have so many other qualities. Look what God's word then says about those who follow him. I got two passages for you. Psalm 119.65 says something so great. It says, great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. And then Isaiah 32.17 says, when we do right, he says, the, effectiveness, the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. When you do right, the God of peace will be with you. Let him motivate you to be more holy and do the right thing. Now, no one calls me worrywart anymore. And I'm thankful for that. Um, but that's because God has given me victory. 
And one of the major ways that he's given me victory is through his word. Is because slowly but surely piling on one scripture after the other and doing one thing after the other over the long haul, he has helped me not to be paralyzed like I used to be. But one of the first challenges I had um, as a new wife was um, the day a few years into our marriage where I had to relinquish the finances in our home. Now, for a math major, excuse me, minor, for a math minor at UCI, that was a rough gig. You know, I loved numbers. Math was my favorite thing to teach. Um, But it became apparent in our home that I was leading my husband. When he was coming to me and asking me for $5 to go to Taco Bell, and did we have $5 that I could go to lunch today? Uh, It was totally backwards. That was not okay. He was coming to me to lead him. It was not right, and he knew it. Um, But frankly, this is not his wheelhouse. Not a numbers guy. Uh, Yeah, you'd stump him with the multiplication tables, but um, it's all right. Many other more important skills in life. And uh, he despises it. But he was compelled because he knew that his wife was very anxious. Do we have enough to make the bills? Is it the fifth? When do we get our paycheck? Oh, that's 20 bucks. I don't know. I was so anxious and I was so controlling of him that at some point he was compelled to take that over. If your husband wants you to do it and you're not leading him, I'm not talking to you, but in our house, it was upside down. Okay? That's all I'll say. And the day that he had to pry that checkbook out of my white-knuckled fingers <laughs> was not a very good one. I mean, you know, we talked about it for months ahead of time, like he's trying to ease me into it so I don't have a cardiac arrest. Um, but it wasn't pretty, and I'm sorry to say that I was not like Sarah in 1 Peter 3, who calls her husband Lord, and is not frightened by any fear, Um, because I was sure that we'd be living in a cardboard box under the freeway. (laughs) I was positive we would never own a home, that our credit rating would tank, and um, all because he wasn't going to do it the way I did it. That's why I was afraid. Hmm. That filled me with anxiety, and it was totally the right thing to do even though I fought it kicking and screaming. But just him taking it over didn't make the anxiety go away. So one day I'm realizing as I'm driving down the freeway, which happened 20 times a day, I'm not exaggerating, 20 times a day I'd be thinking, okay, now we have $135. That means we have to buy tires. Oh, we're going to have to save up for three months. I could not drive. I couldn't go anywhere without thinking of how much money we had and what day of the month it was and how much that bill was going to be. I was totally paralyzed by the money. And um, I decided this is so wrong. So I chose to um, fight it. And um, this very passage is what I started saying to myself out loud. Um, And I didn't say it once or twice. Sometimes it took me six, seven, eight times. I just kept saying it out loud until I stopped thinking about the finances. And I felt ridiculous, but I, I had to say it until it wiped out the anxiety in my head. And I don't know what your anxiety is. I'm just telling you, it works. If you keep 
focusing on what is true and you get the truth in your head, you can push out the lies and anxiety if you just keep saying his word and the truth over and over again and filling it there. And because of God, not because of me, because of God, he has given me some victory. I mean, yeah, it still pops up like a bad game of whack-a-mole, you know, I'm not saying it's gone forever, <laughs> but it's, it's way gone compared to what it used to be. And, um, you know, every little victory helps for the next one. None of this is hard to do. I told you that yesterday. None of this is brain surgery. We're not telling you anything you don't know, but hopefully all of it together helps you fight, helps you get the tools you need for your next dog fight. Yes, we do need to remember and be so thankful and grateful and happy for what God has already done for us eternally. And yes, we do need to pray, thankfully. And yes, we do need to think right and do right um, in order to win the battle with anxiety. And sometimes when you least expect it, you're going to find victory is already at hand. Kind of like another old movie. Do you remember Daniel Sun? Daniel Sun? <laughs> right? Now, we've made a remake of this, so even the young people in the room remember this one. He goes to Mr. Miyagi and he asks him to teach him karate, right? And when he asks him to teach him karate, Mr. Miyagi sends him in the backyard to paint the fence and scrub the deck and wax the car. Remember that? Well, after a while, Daniel gets frustrated. He gets so angry, and he starts to lash out at Mr. Miyagi. And you know, it's at that moment when Mr. Miyagi's got him all riled up and basically is pushing him to defend himself that Daniel realizes he already has the skills to do karate. <laughs> he, he already has them. His mentor has been training him all along. And when the moment came, he was able to do it. You've been trained all along. This weekend is just another set of training exercises for you. And uh, you already have what it takes to outmaneuver and outgun and fight anxiety in your next dog fight. You have godly people in your homes and your small groups and your church that you can follow after heroes that you have who have had success and you it's all just sitting there right in front of you for the day that you need it you already have what you need so we've got to be happy about what god's done we got to pray and thank him and we've got to cement our thoughts on things that are true instead of all the what ifs and the bunny trails we could go down wax on wax off let's go out of here let's win the battle one swipe at a time Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you so much that you've already given us what we need. And I even thank you for the fact that I know this might have been packaged differently, but that it's all very familiar to us, most of us already. I think that's actually helpful because that makes us realize this is not an insurmountable task. This isn't something that... There is no way we could ever do because it's so hard. Um, thank you for just the normal everyday steps. Thank you for scripture. Thank you for truth. Thank you for examples who have gone before us. Thank you even for the victories that we have had in the past and how that will help us in the future. We do pray that you would change our church because of this weekend. 
You know I've been praying for that for months. And I know many here have. We don't want this to be a nice retreat. We want this to transform our church. That we would be women of faith um, who trust you and who are not burdened and paralyzed by anxiety and fear. God, give us victory. In Jesus' name, amen.